0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at Patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Austrian Revolution by Otto Bauer. Otto Bauer's magisterial work, available in English for the first time, is the definitive examination of Eastern Europe's revolutionary period and the unique working-class experiment of Red Vienna. This epic history charts the evolution of three simultaneous overlapping revolutionary waves which took place in Eastern Europe in the midst of the decline and fall of an empire, the devastation of the First World War, and the transformation of global politics in the wake of the Russian Revolution. Bauer provides a unique exploration of both the internal dynamics of a revolution and the costs of defeat, as well as a rich introduction to Austro-Marxism. You can order that at HaymarketBooks.org. The Austrian Revolution by Otto Bauer, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Why are so many private sector workers striking right now at this late moment in the long pandemic? What about the high quit rate? Does so many workers quitting their jobs reflect worker power or organized labor's weakness in a moment of crisis? Or both? Are we in a strike wave? And what does the fight for union democracy have to do with building union and worker power? What does it mean for worker power now that just-in-time supply chains have come crashing down to earth, now that the world is no longer so flat? This Dig is guest hosted by past and future Dig guest Gabe Winant, featuring past Dig guests, labor journalists Alex Press and Jonah Furman, as well as IATSE member Victor Buzzi. Before we get rolling, I really do want to pause and implore you to support The Dig at patreon.com slash thedig with a financial contribution. Contribute any amount at all, and we will send you The Dig's excellent new newsletter by email. It's really good. If you contribute $10 a month or more, we will send you a book or books or a tote bag or a mug. But the real bottom line around our bottom line is that we are only able to put out this podcast and pay everyone who makes it happen and then Give it away to all listeners, regardless of their ability to pay, because those of you who can contribute do so at Patreon.com/slash/TheDig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/slash/TheDig. Thank you. And here's Gabe Winant interviewing Alex Press, Jonah Furman, and for the last segment of the episode, Victor Boozy. Gabriel Winant teaches history at the University of Chicago. His first book, The Next Shift. The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America came out this year. Jonah Furman is a staff writer and organizer at Labor Notes and the former national labor organizer for Bernie Sanders 2020 campaign. Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine and the host of Primer, a podcast about Amazon. I will link to that in the show notes. Finally, Victor P. Boozy is a member of IATSE Local 695. He is a father, production sound mixer, rapper, and community organizer. I'm linking to his podcast, Wait, Why Am I Talking?, in the show notes. Also, while we were recording this episode, a tentative agreement at John Deere came out, granting an initial 10% raise, an immediate $8,500 bonus, and allowing new hires to opt in to the existing pension. We will see if the workers approve it.
1: Press, Jonah Furman. Welcome back to The Dig.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Gabe.
1: Thanks. To start out, let me list some of the major labor actions that have recently happened or are about to happen or seem like they might happen. Ongoing right now or settled in the last few months, we have strikes of assembly workers at John Deere, nurses at Mercy Hospital in Buffalo and St. Vincent in Worcester, workers at West Health Hospital in Minnesota Sutter Delta Hospital in California, Community First Hospital in Chicago, mental health workers in Seattle, coal miners at Warrior Met, metal workers at Special Alloy in West Virginia, food production workers at Kellogg's, Nabisco and Frito-Lay, whiskey makers in Kentucky, symphony musicians in San Antonio, carpenters in Washington State, and student workers at Harvard. There's also the taxi driver's hunger strike in New York, almost two weeks in right now. And we should note the large non-strike activities such as the victory of the United Steelworkers in a 3,500-person representation election for faculty at the University of Pittsburgh. Then, coming up soon, 50,000 workers at the Kaiser Hospital chain have authorized a strike. 60,000 members of IATSE, the Union for Hollywood's Behind the Camera crews, are weighing a tentative agreement. More on that soon. Student workers at Columbia may strike this week. Also possible strikes in the future at a large hospital in West Virginia, at Frontier, the telecom company in California, by faculty at Columbia College in Chicago, flight attendants for an American Airlines carrier, and at a Wyndham Hotel in Philadelphia. Some of these strikes have gone on for months and months, such as the struggles at Warrior Met in Alabama and St. Vincent's in Worcester. Some involve quite large groups of workers, such as John Deere, IATSE, and Kaiser. While it's exciting to see so many workers in motion, on the other hand, past strike waves have involved hundreds of thousands, even millions, not the tens of thousands we're talking about today. In the late 19th century, strikes spread like wildfire along the rail lines, pulling entire cities onto picket lines and leading to episodes of quasi-insurrectionary violence in places like Chicago, Pittsburgh, and St. Louis. In 1919, in the wake of the Russian Revolution, one-fifth of American workers participated in work stoppages, most prominently in steel and coal. In the Seattle shipyards, a walkout that year led to a citywide general strike, and in Boston, the police force went on strike. In 1945-1946, 10-15% of the entire workforce participated. Multiple cities saw general strikes. Entire major industries, again, like coal, rail, steel, and auto, were shut down for months. And labor struggle seemed like it was at the center of national life and politics. So, Jonah, let's start with you. Does it make sense to call what's happening now a strike wave? Why or why not?
3: It does in a way. I, I think a strike wave is not, you know, there's not a strict definition of what that is. One thing I've been thinking about is that Two years ago, October 2019, there was something like 80 to 85,000 workers on strike simultaneously. And yet it wasn't called, you know, striketober. It wasn't making the national news as sort of a unified moment, which I think is, you know, kind of reveals that it's not just about arithmetic. It's not like you add up the number of workers on strike. And if it crosses a certain number, then you have a strike wave. I think part of what we're talking about is when labor struggles line up with social struggles, political struggles, a narrative, you know, some of it is media hype, but it's media hype down to sort of the level of the individual worker, where people really do see that the John Deere struggle and the hospital, the Kaiser stuff going on, IATSE, uh, the overtime struggles uh, at Kellogg and and the other um, food manufacturing plants, like people see these as connected. Um, So a true strike wave, you know, I think the simplest way to describe a strike wave is a strike happens somewhere, workers elsewhere see it and copycat. And they basically say, we're going to do that too. The teachers in the red states in 2018 were clearly a strike wave. You had literally teachers in Arizona saying, hey, West Virginia just did this. We're going to do it now. We're not there yet of people pointing at the other strikes and saying we're going to copycat. But everyone is connecting these actions to a social situation and a political situation, which is not the case for other moments of more strike activity, like the Verizon strike in New York in 2016 was bigger, but it wasn't connected in this way to everything else that was happening, um, for example. And there's plenty of examples like that where we've had more workers on strike, but less political valence or connectivity to other ideas of what, you know, our society is about than we're seeing right now. Alex?
2: Yeah. I mean, I basically agree with that. I haven't really been using the word, the term strike wave, but everyone else is using it. um, So I go along with it. I mean, I think what's happening is an uptick in militancy, right? You know, it's not just quantitative, of course, but still I'm sort of hesitant to call it that, a wave. But what Jonah said is important, which is that people are taking inspiration from one another and connecting their struggles. Like every time I'm speaking with workers who are either contemplating a strike or on strike, they constantly are bringing up other strikes and other fights that are going on. There's this great quote from a guy who was on the John Deere picket line um, in Local 74 of the UAW who said that, you know, he had this sense as the strike began that it wasn't isolated. And he said, labor is finally ready to fight. And, you know, that is the sort of sentiment that I hear again and again. I mean, IATSE workers are constantly saying to me that, yes, we're fighting over hours, And, you know, who else is fighting over ours? It's the people at Nabisco. It's Amazon warehouse workers. And so I think there is this connectivity that comes out of being connected by the pandemic, especially where workers have gone through these immense risks and struggles over the past 18 or so months, and it forced them to think of each other, right? We've all been forced to think of our relation to one another and sort of the sacrifices that people are making um, to keep doing their work. And I mean, you see that in certain ways, especially in industries or jobs like John Deere, where there's the sense that you kept... Um, the sector alive, agriculture. That's true, though, in all sorts of other places, food manufacturing, especially. You know, all these workers who felt that they, you know, were told again and again that you're doing this for the greater good, and now they're expecting to be treated better. Um, and so, in that sense, there really is this articulation of shared fights um, in in a way that I think reflects a political shift that's going on, where people are thinking of themselves as part of a working class in a way that just inherently is broadening the sort of perspective on. Um, on offer. And I mean, the fact that all of those strikes you listed are from different parts of the private sector, I think is really important. Um, So, you know, when we talked about the teacher strikes in the public sector, like that wasn't really happening at the same time as several other strikes in other parts of the economy. Whereas right now we're talking about, you know, John Deere, we're talking about food manufacturing, we're talking about a ton of healthcare workers, film and TV. So this has a potential to spread, right? And so I think it is a significant shift in what's going on.
1: One common theme across many of these struggles seems to be scheduling, staffing levels, and intensity of work. Uh, Workers in many industries are saying that there are not enough of them, that they're expected to do too much work in not enough time. Alex, why are these working conditions related issues coming to the fore right now?
2: Yeah, so again, this is definitely exacerbated by the pandemic. Those staffing levels have been a problem in so many industries before the pandemic. I mean, especially healthcare struggles over safe staffing for nurses and other healthcare workers were already the issue that people were fighting around pre-pandemic. But then the pandemic happens and, you know, there's economic kind of structural forces in place that give workers kind of more power, and it's harder for employers to find employees. And their solution to that is that they start overworking people. So mandatory overtime has now become the issue that everyone talks about. It's particularly bad in certain sectors, food manufacturing especially. But what employers have been doing for these workers that are really going on strike, it's not every employer that is forcing workers into mandatory overtime, but it's a lot, and it's you know cheaper for them to overwork their current employees, then lay out all the costs for benefits and pay and recruitment and training for new employees. And so this is a common sort of shared experience that people are having. And you see it even when that's not the issue sort of at the center of a strike. Like Kellogg's, their main issue is this sort of expansion of two-tier that they have in their contract. That's what they're fighting against. But then you talk to Kellogg workers on strike and they say that like, yeah, you know, some of my coworkers have worked over 100 days straight without a break. I worked 80 hour weeks. And so that's playing into this frustration, this sense that your entire life has become work. And with the pandemic, it heightened the risks of what that means. You know, that might have already been true to some degree, but now you're actually risking the health of you and your family. And so that has a radicalizing sort of shift on what your relationship to your job is. Um, and I, I mean, obviously, we could talk more about IATSE and we will. But that too is the central thing is the sense that there's no reason for me to be sacrificing 18 hours a day for this job. It's just not worth it. And my priorities have shifted because of the pandemic.
3: I think also, I mean, I hope we'll talk about this more as well, sort of like, what does it mean that these are all union workers we're talking about? And what's going on inside the unions? One of the things that seems to be back on the table after really not being part of the conversation about this forced overtime stuff is that these are union workers working eighty hours a week, forced to. You know, UPSers. UPS is the biggest private sector contract in the country, and routinely people are working sixty hours a week, just like getting home at ten thirty p.m., totally ruining their family life. You know, all these serious family issues and personal issues with having to work that much. But it's kind of just been like, yeah, that's how it is. You make good money because you get all this OT, and you know, kind of like love it. You know, time and a half, double time on the weekends. There's something happening in these unions where people are saying, actually, we should make good wages not by destroying our bodies and and, and our personal lives outside of work. Um, so yeah, totally hearing it in John Deere as well. You know, it's not the flagship issue of the strike, but people are all, you know, what they, the, the term they always use is, you can make good money if you live in there. That's like, you know, how they talk about overtime. So I think there's a challenge that's coming to the fore here with the union saying, actually, we have these contracts that provide, you know, you can make a good wage if you structure your life around work, but maybe we don't want to do that anymore. Um, And that really has not been part of, like, the fight in even the 97 UPS strike, the biggest strike in my lifetime, was about part-time, you know, part-time America won't work. Part-time jobs aren't enough. It was about getting more work. Suddenly, we're talking about work-life balance for the first time since the 70s in like a serious way within the unions.
1: Yeah, and it's very striking just in that the contestation over the length of the working day was obviously the historic heart of the emergence of the labor movement, but really fell out of collective bargaining and working class struggle in general, really through much of the post-war period, although you're right that it reemerged in the 70s.
3: Yeah, I mean, just sorry to jump in, but one, one other thing that is sort of like Alex said across sectors, you know, there's a big fight in the... Electricians, the IBEW in Florida, they just have a contract that got imposed that essentially eliminates the weekend. This was the whiskey makers in Kentucky was about eliminating the weekend as a protected time for overtime. Nabisco across the country was about eliminating the weekend for overtime. So it's overwork and it's also protecting your time, uh, which yeah has not has not been you know one of the top issues and certainly not the public narrative about union jobs. You know, admitting that we it's not acceptable to work your life, your whole life.
1: I want to drill in a little bit more on the pandemic itself and its lingering consequences for workers' actions. Obviously, millions of American workers endured appalling conditions over the last 18 months, enormous danger on the job for many impossible demands on their endurance and harrowing conditions, particularly in industries like food production, like healthcare. Even though it's not necessarily a greater risk of catching COVID on the job had to navigate the economic destabilization of their industries. How do you see the relationship between the pandemic and workers kind of lashing
3: back now? You know, I keep saying this, but the John Deere kind of slogan of the strike, if there's been one, was all the local unions printed up their own shirts and it says, deemed essential in 2020, prove it in 2021, you can't build it from home. Like that, to me, is the entire Thing right there, and and it's also why you know we're talking about a strike wave, even if the numbers aren't there yet. It's because there's been this collective raising of expectations of what what we gave to our jobs and what our jobs owe us back. So of all the horrors and trauma that people went through of the pandemic, the takeaway for people has been. Like, don't say I never did anything to you. Don't tell me that I didn't. This is, has been what workers have said in contract fights before the pandemic. But now it's, it's the national headline for 18 months that workers are running the world. And finally, like, you know, this level of consciousness is, is permeating to down to the member level and not just the activist level.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's especially true, obviously, in certain parts of the economy. I mean, this is healthcare workers again and again are saying this. I mean, they're being pushed to like the brink. I mean, the the situation when you're understaffed during a pandemic is just absolutely shocking. And I mean, there's this one, I forget who said it, but they were talking about attending a DSA meeting early in the pandemic and an EMT said, you know, when you realize your boss is your boss is willing to kill you, it changes your relationship to your job. So you're juggling these incredible sort of social responsibilities, and it's not just in healthcare, but I mean, John Deere, again, food manufacturing, meatpacking workers, all these workers are being inscripted into this sort of narrative about, you know, you're doing this for the broader good, and we all owe you, and we're going to clap and applaud you and call you essential. Um, And meanwhile, you're being treated like shit um, and you're terrified uh, for, especially in certain sectors, for your health and the risk that the pandemic poses. Um, And so, yeah, it's exactly the sort of ironic raising of expectations that, you know, employers certainly weren't planning to follow through on. Um, And so now they're seeing the backlash of that. I mean, the fact that they have a tighter than usual labor market gives workers more leverage. But it's really the sense that there's nothing left to lose and that you've actually done the public a good and you deserve something in return. And the fact that employers, I mean, especially John Deere, but all sorts of employers right now are then demanding actual concessions rather than giving more um, shows there's a real mismatch of understanding of the moment from the bosses and the workers. Um, And the broader public seems to be on the side of workers on this. Um, And so that I think too feeds this narrative that you're not isolated and that in fact, people are with you if you're willing to take action.
1: The last couple of years have seen two major federal interventions to expand the social safety net, albeit in haphazard and temporary ways, a huge increase in consumer demand in recent months, and the supply chain interruptions that have followed and that we all you know hear about all the time now, uh, and the figure that the economists call the quit rate, the number of workers who are quitting their jobs, is the highest it's been in decades. And a high quit rate is generally taken to be a sign of leverage for workers. At least for workers as individuals in the labor market. You're likelier to quit your job when you're confident you can figure out something better, possibly because of a tight labor market or because of unemployment insurance or child tax credit or stimulus payments. When things are more tilted against workers, they're likelier to just take whatever bosses offer. Do you think the high quit rate is being driven by greater leverage for individual workers? Is it an effect of workers being less willing to take the shit that they've taken in the past 18 months or even the past 10 years? And how should we understand all of this narratively in terms of how the fight over the balance of class power is being negotiated, not just on the shop floor or on the picket line, but in a kind of vaguer public sphere?
2: So the numbers, to be clear, are like incredibly high. So the Department of Labor put out numbers for August and it was 2.9 percent of the U.S. workforce quit their jobs in August um, so like 4.3 million people. Um, so it's incredibly high, right? It's super significant. Something's going on. Um, and then when you actually look at the numbers of where the quit rates are highest, they're exactly where you'd expect hospitality, retail, healthcare, not far behind. And those are also where people are switching sectors entirely. So finding totally different types of jobs. Um, so in that sense, you know, I think... Part of it, of course, is about this sort of structural or economic leverage, right? You have more people retiring early because the pandemic just made it too much to handle. And so people can quit um, for good or quitting. Um, but I think it's also, again, this sort of sense of there's nothing left to lose. These jobs suck anyway, most of these jobs. And so why would you continue putting up with them? I mean, it's very connected to the story of unions and strikes, because if you have a union, you can stay and fight. If you don't, you know, you can ask the boss for more. And if he doesn't give it to you, you can quit. Um, So I do think there is actual sort of it's not just about workers having more options. It's actually also a sense of sort of the subjective shift of what you're willing to put up with or not. Um, And I think the narrative more broadly is reflecting that because it's so widespread that people are, you know, in the U.S., This sense that, you know, you're supposed to be grateful for your job. That's laughable in a lot of these industries now. People are just openly complaining about their jobs. And it's because the stakes are so high Um, that you don't feel you need to be grateful for it anymore. So I think in that sense, you know, there was this Gallup poll earlier this year that said 48% of the workforce was actively job searching or looking for other opportunities. And so in that sense, you know, I think it's part and parcel of this broader story, but it's also reflective of a weak labor movement as far as organized labor, that people are navigating job searches on their own um, rather than having any kind of collective activity that they can stay and fight at their jobs. And so in that sense, it's sort of a double-edged sword on this one, because while people who are quitting are getting slightly higher raises at their new jobs, it's still a tragedy. You know, they're going to Amazon warehouses. Those jobs suck too. Um, So they get a raise, but they certainly don't get good working conditions. And so it's a mixed story, I think.
3: You know, not to be overly cute, but like the, the, this name that people have come up with it for, you know, the great resignation is like, I think it's snappy. I think it's cool. Uh, But, uh, (laughs) you know, it has this double meaning that I feel like we haven't picked up on, which is like, yeah, you resign your job because you're resigned that it can't get better. There's not another path besides I'll just walk, which is great in a tight labor market. A tight labor market is not going to last. You're going to get back to a point where there isn't somewhere else to walk to and things have whatever balanced out. I don't know if it'll be soon, but you know, there is this sense that uh, just what else am I supposed to do besides quit my job? You know, There's not an idea of... Oh, we could like fix this. You know, I we could we could do some sort of collective answer to it. And I also it also makes me think that, you know, there's sort of an inverse image on the union side of it, which is Kim Moody in this great book, An Injury to All, he opens with saying, like, the American labor movement, you know, has this weird thing where it's essentially a collection of individuals. It's an aggregation of I'm gonna get a better deal. That's sort of the prevailing logic of the mainstream U.S. labor movement in the 80s when, when he's writing. And I think it's the same sort of thing where you're like, I'm an individual in a sea of individuals. Um, I am not an actor in a collective body. And I think like if there's something happening now, part of it, the most hopeful part is that both the non-union and union people are seeing a more collectivized version of, you know, I'm seeing my behavior as part of a some kind of like broader organism, not just my move that happened to line up with millions of others' moves. Let's put
1: the current situation in a longer view. 2018 and 2019 saw a significant increase in strike activity, reaching the highest level since the mid 1980s. And particularly, as we've already mentioned, a significant uptick in public sector education uh, strike activity. Uh, And this was very striking after the brutal labor market, the 10 years that followed the 2008 recession. Is what's going on now a continuation of the Red for Ed 2018-2019 moment? Should we see it as something new? And in particular, what's the strategic significance of the shift from a more public sector-centered wave of activity a couple of years ago to more significantly private sector activity going on now?
3: You know, to start off, the biggest picture frame for me is like, in the past five to 10 years, maybe it's from 2008, there's been, you can call it a lot of things, there's been an anti-establishment mood, there's been a disruption of whatever homeostasis there was in our society, and our economy, and that stuff didn't, you know, it, it, I think first came into this street protest stuff, then it came into, you know, our political parties writ large, the establishments of those parties, It didn't end at the workplace or in the unions. Like, this stuff just has a longer tail, I think, for a lot of reasons. I think it takes longer to organize collective activity, especially in sort of islands of of organization that unions are. You know, it's not like, you know, if you're challenging the Democratic or Republican establishment, you can go knock every door in your neighborhood. This is a lot more, it's like a Swiss cheese of where the union members are and the organizations are. But I still think a lot of it is that. I mean, you have in a a lot of these uh, strikes or or union transformations, you see people who are really into the Bernie movement or, you know, you have to admit it, really into the Trump movement. There's a lot of like super MAGA guys uh, in the John Deere thing who are leading the way on the strike action saying, we're not going to accept it. And I don't see that happening without a broader social upheaval or disruption, whatever you want to call it. So I feel like zooming out, this just is one of the sort of faces of this complicated shape of like disrupting our political status quo since 2008, maybe since 2016, wherever you want to start it. But that that for me is like the thing that people don't talk about. They talk about the workers over there and the politics over here. And it's like they're the same people.
1: More broadly, you know, how, how do you think we should understand this current moment in relation to the kind of generational defeat of the labor movement that we've been talking about, which maybe you want to trace to the 1980s, maybe earlier? Uh, famously embodied in that decade by Reagan's crushing of the air traffic controller strikes, but really reenacted year after year, contract after contract down to today in things like we've already brought up, such as two-tier contracts, which proliferated across the economy over the last several decades. The air traffic controller strike is often seen as a key episode in the imposition of neoliberalism in the U.S. Today, neoliberalism is often seen as in crisis. A rising left has gained ideological ground, the welfare state has been at least sort of partly expanded in some ways, at least marginally. How does workers' action relate to this larger political question? Joni, you started to get into this, but I, think, I wonder if we could explore more how both workers are contributing to and engaging in a struggle over the kind of larger political economic regime, and also how we should understand the reemergence of repressive strategies, such as judicial injunctions against picketing, as workers at Warrior Met and John Deere have both seen, and other kinds of repression that workers may be encountering.
3: The Labor Notes view of this is obviously we have we have a preoccupation with looking at the unions as organizations and as internally sort of alive bodies that have different wings in them and have different struggles over direction. And, you know, one way to understand that that's like the, the unions are still a, a sort of crystallization of the U.S. working class. So the most organized there's big differences between union and non-union but you can see sort of patterns of what's going on in the broader workforce if you look at how internal contestation is happening in the unions i would say look union members have hated two tier for a long time it was really it really took off in the reagan era directly after patco and the chrysler bailout and concessions in across industries airline grocery auto it's not new for union members to hate it. It's new for union members to publicly, credibly say, we think we can undo it. To me, that is like, it might seem niche or like union wonky or something. But if you want to look for signs that like the Patco Reagan era is sort of ending on some like spiritual level or ideological level or like emotional level for people who actually believe maybe it could end, this era could be over. To me, it's the two-tier thing, because that is the most, essentially what happened after PATCO is, yes, the capitalist class went on the offensive, went for everything they could, but the unions played defense. They basically went into this crouch and stayed there. You, people call it fortress unionism. Kamudi has much harsher things to say about it. Whatever you think about this concessionary period, there was a union-based response. And now in these unions, you're having members say, I mean, John Deere, the 1997 tier needs to end now, which it's been around for 24 years. You know, there's not. it's not a new thing that the 97 tier is terrible, but it is a new thing saying, we're going to strike for it and we're going to hold out for it. Um, so to me, that's like what's one of the signs of like, is this a political turning point more broadly? And how is that reflected in organized workers?
2: Yeah, I'm thinking of um, one of the strikers at Kellogg said to me when I was when they first started the strike, because um, it's largely about Kellogg wants to expand and sort of make permanent this two-tier that they had inserted in the last contract um, as a temporary measure. And the striker said to me, why would any worker in the future want to be part of a union that sold them out and allows them to work for the rest of their lives with no insurance and no benefits once they retire? People at many, many places that are contemplating strikes or are on strikes have expressed exactly that sentiment. You know, they, it might not always be what is being is being led with as the issue. But it's always coming up and it's credibly being said that like, look, we want to have power at work and we're serious about making unions something that actually are good for the broader workforce. It's not just about me right now. It's about future workers. I mean, that is central at John Deere, too. Um, That's central at Kaiser. I mean, I was just talking to someone in a local that had authorized a strike at Kaiser, And she was saying the same thing that they're, you know, trying to push for way lower wages for future hires. And she was mainly talking about that, even though her wages are bad, too. Um, and so there's this sense of sort of looking out into the future that's happening um, that I think reflects, again, sort of a pandemic kind of changing people's sense of possibilities and what's normal and the status quo. Um, And so there's this real sense that there's no reason that we should be accepting these things. And in fact, we're willing to fight for other people because we already had to for the past 18 months. So why should I be only interested in my own contract or my own benefits? Um, And you're seeing that, I mean, UPS, that's going to be a big fight when their contract is up uh, for negotiation again. I mean, this is a similar sense of unions accepting bad contracts and the membership I mean, they tried to vote down their last contract at UPS um, and they only it only got pushed through because of a very bad uh, rule within the Teamsters requiring two thirds of them to vote against it.
3: Which they undid this summer as part of like a move against this entire thing. So, yeah,
2: exactly, exactly. And so there's this sense that workers are taking, I think, you know, it's a simplification to say that like workers are taking ownership over their unions again. Um, Obviously, many workers already do have ownership over the unions and, you know, some are continuing to not sort of contest internally. But there is a sense of kind of it's us. We, you know, we run the world and we also run our unions. And so, uh, you know, if the, there are structures in place that aren't amenable to that, like we're going to fight and the leadership's going to come with us um, rather than the other way around. And so I think that, too, is part of a very different dynamic um, or at least sort of this one potential hopeful sign towards a different dynamic than has been the sort of standard operating procedure in um, a lot of the labor movement for the past couple decades.
1: Well, let's talk more about the formal life of the labor movement. Even as public opinion has become more favorable to organized labor than it has been in decades, uh, union density is only around 10%, around 6% in the private sector. Obviously, low density is bad for a workers' power in general, but let's get more specific about it. What are some of the consequences in a moment of labor shortage like this one to have uh, having such low density? How does low density make it harder to win strikes and tilt the balance of power between labor and capital? And what do you think is the connection between this broader disorganization of the U.S. working class and the struggles for democracy inside the unions that do exist? The UAW is in the middle of intense internal conflict. So are the Teamsters Has just started to come up. And what's the relationship between these struggles and the larger balance of power
3: between labor and capital? You know, one thing this makes me think of in the UAW, this isn't exactly strike-related right now, but for example, the uh, the electric vehicles industry, right? It's part of a Green New Deal. It's coming. It's here in some senses. There's a huge expansion in among the big three automakers, the union automakers in the UAW. You know, they're building battery plants. They're moving electric vehicles into more factories. And they're using this as this moment of, could call it like disaster unionism or something. They're like using the moment to Undermine union rights both in who's organized. So, like, there's it's contested whether the Ford battery plants will be union or not, which is wild. I mean, Ford workers are UAW, you know, this is just established. It's also there's there's plants where there's deals being made for electric vehicles to replace legacy vehicles, and with it, bringing everyone down to the lowest tier of the contract, you know, degrading jobs that do exist. So one of the things that low density means is that there's more places to run to and there's fewer allies in in terms of actual workers. If you build a plant in Tennessee where their density is low and union sentiment, union consciousness is low, you're far less likely to organize it. As we saw like Volkswagen in Tennessee some years back for the UAW being a big loss. Same in Mississippi, same in South Carolina, you know, sort of the existential question for for the unions is as your island shrinks, or, you know, another metaphor is like, as there's fewer sort of ducks, sitting ducks for them to hunt, the target on your back is clearer. It's it's right there. And that's also part of the two-tier thing. People are saying, we realize if we become the top tier, and 90% of the workforce is bottom tier, or 90% of my workplace is bottom tier, suddenly my pension is on the chopping block in five years. You know what I mean? So there is like, this issue of if you are not insulated by other union members and other people having decent standards, your standards are not secure at all, right? I mean, it's like, I, I don't need to mix more metaphors, but like, if, if, if you are the only one with health care left, pretty soon you're not going to have health care. No matter how, you know, strong you may be personally, you are going to be up against a much worse terrain.
2: Yeah, I mean, and on the flip side of this, I it was interesting covering IATSE as they're dealing with this tentative agreement and considering it. You know, in the lead up as it was being negotiated, there was real sort of strength being displayed by the fact that so you know so many Hollywood workers are union. There was a sense of planning going on in Los Angeles. You know, Unite Here was getting involved. Everyone was sort of making their contingency plans. The LA Teachers Union, people within that union, were starting to figure out what solidarity and support on the strike lines would look like for IATSE. So it's very clear how this helps, right? That if you actually have allies and you have people on your side in your industry that are union, it's much harder for the you know, the boss to make the argument that you know, you're the one weighing the cost down, as Jonah said. Like your target, there isn't a target because everyone's sort of unified on this. And so I think that's very clear. I mean, it's also... The case in the South that when there are these big union campaigns that happen and often fail, it's in part because the employer can credibly make the argument that, look, I can't afford it because everyone else around here doesn't have to pay that kind of wage, doesn't have to provide benefits. So I think it's a very obvious um, question of what does sort of a, a union movement that actually looks beyond its existing members, how does that benefit them and how does it benefit the broader working class? And I mean, again, going back to these struggles within inside unions, Part of that is people seeing the moment and saying, if we seriously want to use this moment and actually be able to look at the people quitting their jobs and say, what if you stayed and fought? What if we actually built uh, a growth in the density of unions um, that some of that requires a nimbleness that just cannot exist in you know something like a corrupt uh, UAW leadership, for example? That's just not the focus of those leaders. Um, And so there is a connection there of a feeling that this is a moment where something is happening. And, you know, it's up to the unions um, to be able to actually grasp that moment and do something in a short amount of time. Um, And so these structures are very important in the relationship between movement and stasis.
1: What do you think is the connection between, to spell it out a little bit more, between the ossification or even corruption of union bureaucracy or officialdom and the kind of period of generational defeat that we've been talking about? How do those things relate to each other?
3: That's a great question. I mean, you know, partly it's like the kingdoms are shrinking, you know, and it it, it undermines the power of the the unassailable leaders of these unions. So you've been in office for 25 years, but your union has shrunk by, you know, 60%. You still start to look a little less scary to the members you know i mean to people challenging you internally so that's i think you know one dynamic there is that like the emperor has no clothes uh happening as these unions it's very uneven you know uh, different unions are going through different periods of growth or decline but you know the UAW especially conditions have gotten so much worse membership has plummeted i i, I don't have the numbers but you know we're talking about like half the union in a, in a generation is gone. Automaker, you know, it's something like 200,000 union auto workers in a million among a million workers in this country who work on cars. So I think there's just a sense of like, you're not that tough. We're not that scared to take on this issue. There's also, I think probably a lot of apathy. Um, you know, these unions get so weak that at the same time that like sort of openings for reform might be more possible, there's a lot of people who just tune out. What's the union to me? You know, why would I contest for power in something that has little power? Truer where, you know, in public sector, in, uh, in not, not union-friendly states. But, you know, that's a dynamic you see across. So I, I also would say, like, one of the things, just sort of a broad way we talk about this stuff is people like to talk about the unions are in decline. And that was true in the 80s. The unions are, you know, Tom, Tom Goegan has in uh, Which Side Are You On? He has this great line, a book that was written in 1990, where he says, when labor was dying, that was interesting. Now that it's dead, what's there to talk about? Something like that. You know, I think we need to understand our period of the labor movement as very different. It's not decline. It's like just kind of bouncing along the bottom. And that that is a different moment than sort of like a disruption to status quo. Most people's status quo has not been super disrupted in the past 20 years. It's been pretty weak, and it's stayed pretty weak. So yeah, so I, I don't know. I mean, it, it has contradictory effects in different unions for sure.
2: Yeah, I would just say to add, you know, an interesting case study of this is just as I've been writing about and talking to IATSE people, you know, there's this sense, again, it brings it back to the pandemic of a lot of membership that was apathetic, um, as Jonah sort of spoke to um, the sense that I'm not really engaged as a member. I don't really care or pay attention. And then being forced to care um, because one's working conditions were so bad um, or there was a shift in one's own life situation that made those working conditions look very different. Um, And so now there's a re-engagement and members are hitting against structures that they realize are not actually their ideal structures and that they are members. Um, They're being reminded of it all the time as there's a politicization around these contract negotiations. And so there all of a sudden are questions on the table about the existing structures within unions. So I think even in the short term, even in fairly kind of more disorganized membership uh, compared to like, you know, even the UAW having an actual sort of reform caucus fighting or the Teamsters for Democratic Union, having an established um, kind of group of people contesting, even in places where this is newer and don't have those structures like IATSE, there is this shift happening that kind of repoliticizes the internal political life of a union um, in a way that I think is significant.
0: I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners, who support us at Patreon.com, and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Revolutions, edited by Michael Loewy. This gorgeous hardcover edition presents a unique collection of rare photographs, documenting a range of important revolutionary upheavals, and pairs them with incisive essays from leading radical historians. Rebellions depicted and discussed in this volume range from the Paris Commune of 1871 to the Russian, German, Mexican, Chinese, and Cuban revolutions, and beyond. This collection is a visually stunning introduction to revolutionary politics, as well as an important contribution to our understanding of the history of political struggle and the role of photography within it. Find Revolutions and all other Haymarket titles 40% off at haymarketbooks.org. Revolutions, edited by Michael Lowy, out now from Haymarket
1: Books. One thing I want to get into a little bit more is a question around economic leverage and strategic sectors. We've talked a lot on the left over the last five or ten years about strategic industries or strategic sectors of the economy and the workforce, often emphasizing logistics, often emphasizing what we might call social reproductive labor, teachers, nurses, this kind of thing. Right? These are groups of workers who often either have some history of militancy or are positioned in some way, either within the economy, like logistics workers, or within the broader social structure, like, say, teachers, uh, in such a way that they have some leverage that we either have seen them use or we can imagine them using. Classically, I think this idea developed in contrast to the experience of capital flight as it was used to discipline manufacturing workers right the fact that the plant could always go somewhere else and management would always be quick to tell you that did a huge amount of damage to workers and unions in manufacturing what should we make of one the role of manufacturing in the current strike wave in you know against that backdrop of the kind of you know generation of capital flight and threats of capital flight and two more broadly how should we think uh, about strategic sectors and st- strategic industries in light of this moment of workers' activity.
3: I mean, I think this is the first time in my life that I can remember the supply chain not being, you know, a golden god that cannot be touched. Like, people like to talk, again, Kim Moody likes to talk about sort of just-in-time production, the the weaknesses in bottlenecks, and, and, you know, people have made maps of, like, this part of Jersey is really vulnerable, you know, all these things. We always felt a little bit like, yeah, sure, if we're, like, ready to shut production down for political demands, which is, we're not, you know, the unions are not close to that. The working class is not close to that level of organization. Suddenly the supply chain is like, maybe it won't keep going or maybe it won't work. Maybe like we actually can't get goods and services into the heart of, you know, capital's empire or something that's new. That feels different. There's also shutdowns related to it that feel totally different. Again, in the UAW, you have plants that can't get microchips have been down for seven months. This was a big issue in the Volvo strike is the timing of the microchip supply chain versus worker action. Are we working while they have chips so they can create back inventory to starve us out on a strike? John Deere was talking about this too. There's all these parts shortages, which is just to say like, I don't know if this lasts beyond the pandemic, but I think it changed people's sort of mind in those industries about sort of, is the assembly line just going to keep going? Uh, The answer is maybe not. And that opens, it, it might open possibilities. It certainly makes you ask new questions about what is the role of my union, my labor, the timing of that labor, the quantity of that labor, the quality of that labor in ways that just, if the assembly line never stops, you have a different set of questions that you have to answer. If it might actually, if goods might not actually flow, uh, it changes the entire dynamic of where your leverage is and what it means to use it.
2: I think there's, it would be interesting. I haven't been talking to a ton of people working in the ports, but just to Jonah's point there, that like the fact that all of a sudden you're now having, I mean, even Biden intervening to say, we're going to run these ports 24 hours a day, even as they've been set up so tenuously as far as the labor chain. I mean, you have truck drivers who are in massive debt and being forced to pay for their own vehicles and spend hours waiting for work on the in the ports. I mean, these are not set up as sustainable endeavors. Um, Just-in-time production does prevent, present weaknesses. And so I would imagine that that is, in fact, changing people's relationships in the ports to their own labor. Um The fact that once again, you're being conscripted into this national narrative about your work is so important for the economy, right? And you've always known that. But now, in fact, you can see um, where the weaknesses are. I wouldn't call it the same thing. But certainly when I, you know, in among Amazon workers, this is constantly a conversation. I mean, it's not about necessarily sort of supply chains and assembly lines, but there's this constant sort of awareness because Amazon plays such a unique role in the economy, That, you know, there's this sense, you know, Amazon needs to be everywhere increasingly. I mean, it's it's retail square footage for these warehouses. Um, It's real estate square footage has just skyrocketed. Um, And so there's an increasing sense that these workers, too, have some sense of leverage because Amazon simply needs to be everywhere. And so if they cannot build a warehouse and and staff it um, or if there are problems within that warehouse as far as workers fighting for different working conditions, that actually, you know, the entire sort of empire falls um, very quickly. And you do see that with Amazon's efforts to sort of quell any sense of organizing within the warehouses, especially again, as it just expands more and more. I mean, we're seeing this in New York City right now. It's trying to get retail space all around the city because it just needs to serve customers. It's promised that it would get them one day shipping or even it's doing like two hour shipping in Manhattan and stuff. Um, And so that just creates an immense kind of weakness from Amazon if you know, if they rely on workers to that degree. Um, So I think that too is sort of a sense that at certain types of workplaces, even if it's not the traditional sort of strategic sector that like Moody might be talking about, it is still part of that logistics supply chain in a way that, you know, being the last sort of point before the customer receives their goods does provide one with some possible leverage.
1: Yeah. And it's striking to think about uh, the logistics sector and Amazon in particular, maybe in comparison to the role of logistics in the industrial union movement in the 1930s. The reason that the Longshore strike on the West Coast in 1934 was the kind of key transition moment to the rise of industrial unionism was exactly because, you know, the docks were where you could go if you didn't really have anywhere else to go in the labor market. Uh, it was the bottom layer of the labor market. It's why it was believed to be unorganizable. And the success of strike action on the West Coast in thirty four. On the docks, signaled that something was possible more broadly across the economy and across the labor market. It's not a one-to-one comparison, and obviously the docks now don't employ the numbers of people that they did then. But if you think about Amazon in that role, maybe you can maybe get your wheels turning a little bit. Um, my last question for you two is about organ.
2: I just want to say, I mean, just to your point, there's this great moment in um, Alec McGillis's book about Amazon fulfillment where he spends a whole chapter at Sparrows Point outside of Baltimore, which was once the site of Bethlehem Steel and is now the site of several Amazon warehouses on the exact same plot of land. Um, and, he sa- and he actually finds a guy who worked at the mill and now works at Amazon and ends up uh, quitting... Uh, because he gets in trouble for handing out union literature to the younger workers who are driving a forklift and one guy in particular. Um, and so Bill is the guy's name and he just ends up quitting. Um, and his wages, you know, starting at Amazon were something like 50 percent of what they'd been when he left the mill. Um, so, again, difference of uh, union versus not. But, you know, Alex says that like, you know, it used to be that in that area you could just walk down to the mill and get a job. Um, and now you just walk down to the Amazon warehouse and get a job. And so it's exactly sort of you know, though it's a different type of work, and you know, and that's a separate industry than even the the ports that you were talking about and longshoremen. You know, it is a similar sense of sort of this gathering place of the workforce. Um, certain Amazon workers who are active um, in organizing efforts talk about it that way. When I talk to them, that there's you know, they're like, "Where do you find the working class? Well, you find them in the parking lot at my Amazon warehouse." And so, you know, there's the sense that something has to be done. And this is, in fact, similar to sort of how we talk about unions as where you find the organized workforce. Certain people, I think, who work at Amazon are saying, you know, this is, in fact, the space of socialization of the American working class at this point. In that sense, it's a very important um, space for organizing, even if it's incredibly difficult.
1: Well, my last question follows on this theme and is about organizing the unorganized. Jonah, you've been involved in the Emergency Workplace Organizing Committee. Alex, you've been covering struggles in the Belly of the Beast at Amazon. And what do you two think the prospects are for organizing workers in the vast stretches of the economy where there's no union presence? Are there areas of possibility right now? What do you think are some of the key barriers or limits?
3: I would say broadly, like, I have been a partisan of the idea that essentially the most likely growth of organization is com- is going to come from sort of reinvigorating existing organizations. So, you know, if, it, if the Teamsters would actually strike UPS and bring standards back up, maybe there's hope to bring in Amazon workers. You know, if you're making more at Amazon in the warehouse than you are at UPS in the warehouse, it's really hard to make, you know, it's, it's just such an easy wedge for the boss. So, but I also think that was kind of like my pre-crisis uh, thinking. And and the question is, like, does the crisis moment last longer? I think, with again, with these mass quits, when industrial unionism really exploded, you have all these stories of CIO organizers getting a call saying, uh, we're all on strike and we're now in your union. And they would say, oh, OK, I guess I'll bring you some cards or something, you know, we'll bring you some signs. We're not there yet, but if that's the model, that there's sort of like an upsurge model that just gets absorbed, you know, that's that's sort of one theory of change of what can happen in a crisis. I'm not going to say like the book is closed on that, but we did not see that upsurge in the year 2020. We didn't see mass... You know, we talk about Amazon, which is totally... We should talk about Amazon To me, the elephant in the room is always Walmart. We're not talking about Walmart anymore. Ten years ago, union people used to talk about Walmart. There used to be books about Walmart. You know, how UFCW had a program called Our Walmart. We're organizing Walmart. Nobody even says the word Walmart anymore. It's just Amazon, Amazon, which I totally think is strategic. It's growing. It's involved in distribution in a way that Walmart isn't. But it's kind of revealing to me that, you know, we're picking targets, we're picking things that kind of ignite people's imagination in a way that's useful, but we're not yet on the level of, can we organize the economy as workers? Uh, So just to say, I don't think we've seen the breakthroughs either on the worker side of, I'm ready to move on that level. You know, people are ready to quit, but they're not ready to strike at non-union Facilities on any serious scale, and we haven't seen certainly the movement from the unions. The unions still have a structural incentive to service their members, make sure their organization stays afloat through the crisis, not to say what's our offensive, you know what's our target for the industry
2: yeah, I mean i that is fair. I remember distinctly being at a Labor Notes conference a few years ago when there was like a sort of quiet caucus going on of people who were saying, I'm going to take a job at an Amazon warehouse. And and there was a lot of sort of pushback on that. You know, people were saying there's already union warehouses that have that need a reinvigorated membership. Why don't you take those jobs? You know, people were saying, what about UPS? Why aren't you going to take a job there? And so it's a real question. I mean, part of this is about sort of capturing imagination um, a sense that, you know, media pays attention to Amazon, so it makes sense to organize there versus people saying that's not how it works, um, that actually you have to build from exist the existing islands or the Swiss cheese holes uh, that Jonah was referring to. Um, and so I think it's a fair question. That said, you know, at the same time, people are at Amazon. That's, you know, we have almost a million people working in those places. And so in that sense, I mean, people organizing where they already are, um, I think is just inevitably part of what that landscape is going to look like. Um, But I certainly can't pretend to predict uh, how it's going to unfold. Part of that is about how, again, existing unions relate to those efforts, especially the Teamsters with Amazon, for sure. Uh,
3: Just one last thing. I will say for all the shit I talked about, Walmart, I'm sorry I had to get my Walmart thing in. I, I do think like we have seen in not as widely as we'd like to see, but yeah, like the emergency Uh, Workplace Organizing Committee is this project of DSA and the UE that really does speak to we are going to do something new, new organizing wise. Um, I think also Unite Here, a union that was just decimated by the pandemic, like we're seeing motion there that points to a willingness to, or at least an acceptance that like the bottom could fall out if we're not proactive about the rest of the economy.
2: So now for part two of the this episode, Um, we're joined by Victor Buzzi, who's a member of IATSE Local 695, um, who works in Los Angeles and is based in Southern California and Long Beach. Um, Vic. So there's been a ton of attention paid to IATSE's basic agreement and then area standards agreement. These are two contracts that cover about 60,000 people between them. Um, So a huge number of people. There was a strike authorization vote. Um, and 99 percent, I think it was 98.6 something percent of members who voted, voted to authorize a strike. And it was 90 percent turnout, too, which reflects really a mobilized membership um, that feels pretty strongly about these negotiations. That strike was averted last minute. There was a tentative agreement reached with the studios, um, I think about, you know, 28 hours before the strike deadline had been given. And so now there's a tentative agreement. So I want to ask you what led up to the strike authorization and then how you're thinking about the agreement now.
4: Thank you for that intro. So what led up to the strike authorization vote was some anger for we had a meeting at town hall early September. And usually in those meetings, I'm the one like, you know, talking about the capitalists, talking about the bosses and how unfair it is and giving the socialist rant in a room full of normies. But that meeting, I didn't have to say anything. Everybody was just so angry at just everything. It's like, yo, we don't want these hours anymore. It's like, well, we have had these hours forever. Ooh, you know, this is like the normal culture. We don't. We want a bigger turnaround. The ten-hour turnaround, doing low-budget work, a ten-hour turnaround is golden. It's it's a win. So, knowing that these things are now presented as were presented as a win. But the workers are past that. Like the moment where those demands were made is a different moment that we're in right now. And so we got the strike authorization vote and that came out through phone banking. Every single member got phone banked and they got pitched about why this is important to vote on this strike authorization vote. And that's how you get such a high turnout. So with anger some organization and mobilization, this is what happens. So the whole momentum felt like, quote unquote, a continuation of Striketober. And this would be our moment in history to keep it going for workers. But it wasn't. At the last minute, we got a tentative agreement that our leadership has just put out to say to vote yes on it. So that's where we're at right now with all that.
2: And I just want to explain for people who haven't been obsessively following um, my, <laughs> the journey of what a normal day for an IATSE member looks like that I, I certainly have learned a lot over the past few months about this. Turnaround times are how much time you have from when you're leaving set or work um, in whatever capacity to when you can be expected back on the job. So 10 hours is now what has been agreed upon in this tentative agreement, though there are exclusions even to that still. Um, But so that means 10 hours from getting off work, driving home, seeing your family, eating dinner, getting sleep, driving back. So it's not that much time, really. Um, And given that people are working 14, 16, 18 hour days, um, often being worked through meal breaks as well, that's part of sort of standard in the industry that a a studio can pay a meal penalty fee to work someone through lunch. So they pay the worker a few extra bucks and don't give them a break. Um, That all contributes to incredibly high stakes, right? People feeling exhausted, people getting in car crashes on their way home from work, so on and so forth. So that is sort of what the big issue for a lot of workers was.
4: Yeah, definitely was. It was like the thing is, it wasn't an issue. It wasn't an issue because it was so normalized within the industry. And after covid, it's a big issue. It's a huge issue. And again, changed everything. Once you give workers some time to sit down and analyze their life, to be like, why am I on set 70 hours a week and folks just don't want to do it no more? And there was definitely a breaking point. And I'm talking about within my local. A breaking point of like, we don't want to do this anymore. And it's almost like a putting of like people putting their foot down to be like, yo, I know this is how it was, but it's not going to be like this anymore. And we're telling y'all we don't want it to be like this anymore.
2: Right. I think that's So we were talking earlier about the sense that people are actually changing the accepted norms, that there's a sort of desire to actually take back things that had been previously agreed upon. And so I think the membership moving over the course of these negotiations to demands that are beyond what the leadership asked for in the first place is pretty significant and also kind of in line with what's been happening in other unions and other strikes.
4: Yeah, when it happens from the bottom up, when the real anger from the bottom up um, gets organized and presented to the leadership, they almost didn't know what to do with all this. (laughs) They were like, hey, you said this was okay, but now it's not okay. And they're almost like, well, um, you got to vote for it because it was fine. And this leads me to this. It's like I've been torn about what to do about this TA. We're just not ready as IATSE to really bring it to the capitalists like I think we should because there's no strike fund. So we haven't been organizing to that point to get to a strike everything happened so quickly and that's why i'm saying it's such a change in american workers because we were one way and within the course of months it all flipped on its head what was okay is not okay anymore so there's gonna be the next fight right and for the next fight is when we take these three years this anger this whatever this ta is take it accept it but in the meantime stay steadily vigilant, organizing, so when the demands come up next time, they're 100% in line um, with what the workers want, like the strike authorization vote. That was clear as day what the workers wanted because they got phone banked. Labor went into contacting every single member, and that's what needs to happen on a consistent basis before the next um, negotiations.
3: Why does it change? Why did it? Why is it not okay anymore? you know, is it uh, like we talked just before this, like the pandemic obviously played some role in that. But like, what do you think taking a random IOTI member who voted to strike and is not happy with the turnaround times? What changed for them is one question. And then my other question, which you can take is, uh, what do you mean organized? Like, like, is it like there's a group that's going to be like, no, unless, I don't know, 14 hour turnarounds? Is there organization across locals? What new organization has come out of this? Like, who are you talking to you weren't talking to before? And how are you organizing your contacts and just the nuts and bolts? Like, what does it mean to organize in three years? Those are my two big ones.
4: I'm going to take the organizing one first and we'll loop back around. So by organizing, it's phone calls, getting a list of people who you think are influential in the union and having meetings, right? And in DSA. I'm also in DSA and on that end, since we are organizers, there are people who are in DSA and in IOTC, having access to those folks and being like, yo, this is your moment in history as a socialist, you're in DSA, you're in IOTC, you need to step up and we're gonna give you the structure to help you step up. So here's how we're meeting, here's when we're meeting, and we, this is still go ongoing. How are we going to divide up the locals? Do we have enough folks to have a group for every local? Or do we need to group some locals together? But as soon as we figure out those nuts and bolts is coming up with petitions to circulate amongst the membership, to ask questions, and then also to work within Ayatsi to be like, hey, I think we need staff to keep these folks activated. So we're always in contact. Cause like have, asking for us to volunteer all the time when you're working 70 hour weeks, it's not sustainable. Like, yeah, we could do it in the short term, but if for a long sustainable effort, we need staff. We need new staff. So new staff positions at the locals to keep people involved, to keep that mesh together. And what changed all this to me, you talk about moments in history. Started with Bernie, right? Twenty sixteen. I'm active. Bernie activated me. I'm starting to understand what DSA is, what organizing is, and that led me to meet some people in Ground Game, LA, and organizing with them. I've met Fatima Iqbal Zubair. I've uh, she's running for California State Senate. I volunteered for her and the uprisings 2020 happened. Got involved with Black Lives Matter Long Beach. All these things gave me the skill sets. So when my union came to me was like, hey, we need y'all to do something about uh, diversity town hall. So I was able to go in the past through all my contacts And hit up the right people and ask and organize the event, moderate the event, bring it together, and show other folks this is what we need to do. So now I'm having meetings with other black mixers, the Sound Sisters. So we're organizing underrepresented groups within our local for a goal to have this town hall. We had a Y16A program, which we decided would be great to be a diversity program and we took that back to the local. So that's what I that's what changed. When folks start talking with each other, start sitting in meetings with other workers, like it took me 3 seconds with a room full of strangers, but we're all black and women and underrepresented groups and I'm like, "Holy shit, this is stronger than any DSA meeting I've ever been and they don't even know it. Nobody even knows it." And they have all the power right there. And we're talking right to the point about bosses, workers, no theory, real-life experience with workers right here who aren't happy. And then we did things materially. So now in 695, um, our Y16A training program is specifically a diversity program. So, like, material changes were made to change the demographics within my union. So once people sit down and have the time to start organizing and talk, by organizing, it's just like connecting with other workers. And because a lot of times we feel like, yo, something isn't right, but what do you do about it? Seeing that, hey, I can do something about it, especially during the uprisings when the streets are filled with people and we're 695, we're like, what the fuck do we do? Like, uh, you know, we put out a statement. Is that enough? It was like, Obviously, it's not. Like, what do we do? And they came to us to be like, yo, what do we do? And then had to be like, oh,
1: okay, I'll
4: I'll tell y'all what to do. You know, that type of stuff.
1: You know, you often hear uh, workers say that after they've stood up to the boss in some kind of way, like a 99% strike vote, Even before there's a new contract in force, even if there's not a strike, something feels different on the shop floor after you do something like that. And that might be intangible. It might be, you know, just little things about, you know, you can trust the people on either side of you. It might be something about how you relate to your uh, supervisor in some kind of way. But I'm curious if you can feel any version of that since the strike vote and how that has kind of evolved over the last month or so. Yes, it's... The vibe is just people are talking about work
4: and contracts and talking about their bosses and how much Netflix is making and the profits of these people. Like, you know, it would come up in you know, in conversation. But ever since this whole strike thing, like, everybody is talking about it. And the folks that know me on set know the type of politics I have. It's a beeline straight to me. Like, literally, just walk right to me, not even high, anything. What do you think about it? What's going on with this? And for people, different people in different departments, not even, you know, on the sound team, to come right up to me and just, like, top of the day, I'm unloading my car, talking about, like, what's going on with this strike. That right there, just having workers being so invested in their place, in cap, where they make money, and always be thinking about that, that's what's changed. And to me, it's like, it's not like the vibe has changed. It's like the people are more themselves. Everybody's, like, there's a certain level of, like, not giddiness, but, like, enthusiasm surrounded not only working or having a job of what we're going to do about this job and how we're going to change things. And anytime anybody's enthusiastic about change, which I quote unquote consider a normie. And that's, that's amazing. Like we need folks who don't see themselves as like political beings to awaken, to be like, and I don't even care if they see themselves as political beings. If they show up to the meetings, if they make the phone calls, if they talk the talk, I don't care what you call yourself or how you see yourself. It doesn't matter because the stuff is getting done.
1: I know that I feel like I recognize that description of people seeming more like themselves when they're when they've demonstrated some some courage and are in some struggle together. Uh, My next question, I don't know if this will kind of make make sense or if there's, you know, there, there might be nothing to this. But before you got on the call, we were talking about, you know, the logistics industry and the ports and, you know, the difficulties of organizing workers in that industry and the importance of it. And then I realized you're in Long Beach, which is, you know, the the biggest port in the country. It's where everything imported from Asia comes in. It's where all those ships are backed up into the Pacific Ocean. And you're in this group of really militant, uh, organized activists and workers, you know, DSA, IATSE, the overlap between them. And then you must be giving some thought to, you know, this big group of workers next door to you who are so central to the economy, who are hyper-exploited. I'm just curious, like, how that fits in your consciousness of your own world and your own activism. Knowing the power
4: of workers and all those workers being right there and so close logistically, uh, we have some members who are um, longshoremen, and they tell us it's, like, a very, like, reactionary um, type of union, you know? And he has a hard time, like, trying to get to him. So I think it's just some political education is needed, some cross... And I'm saying this because I've been thinking about this for, like, since I've been in DSA and realizing, oh, shit, the ports are right here. Oh, we got some longshoremen in uh, in our ranks. And what they've told me, it's like, they're just not... Just, some people aren't there. You know, like, you can't make someone stop drinking if they don't want to stop drinking. Like, you can't force somebody to do anything. And just like with IATSE... <laughs> I could be railing in all these meetings about we need to do this. We need to be blah, 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 blah. But when the world happens and it happens within them, I don't have to say a thing. You know, it just, it happens more organically and naturally. How to get the ports like more organically, naturally, more activated. Like that's tough. I, I don't know. I don't have a real answer to that because... We've been trying to do. it. We're trying to do some like you know, cross political education about like the ports in the past and how important it is, and where they are in society. Because I'm, I bet, even with this Ayatzi strike, a lot of members didn't realize how essential they were to this whole process. You know, because we're so atomized. So that's tough. I don't know. Really, that's a so rambling because I've just been thinking about the same thing for a few years now.
2: Vic I want to ask you about safety in the industry so you know Jonah has been writing a lot about John Deere strike um and there is a picketer who was hit by a car um seemingly accidentally and killed on the picket line recently um and then in IATSE obviously local 600 member Helena Hutchins was shot and killed on a set um not that long ago and so I'm just curious you know what your reaction to that was how it kind of Is related to this ongoing conversation among IATSI members about safety and working conditions. Um, And yeah, I mean, the timing is obviously quite kind of explosive given that this is as people have been having this conversation and as the tentative agreement is being considered.
4: Yo, it's just, we're just playing pretend and making movies. So for people to die over that, it's so like tragic. It's just, it sucks. And I'm really sorry that happened. But for the product, it, the Rust was being done to be sold, right? They were chasing tax credits. Alec Walden was getting the minimum. So these things were being done so they could maximize their profits. When it comes to maximizing their profits, uh, the crew doesn't get to stay in a hotel close. They got to drive an hour away. All these things... It's like nobody's evil. There is no evil like producer who's like, "I hate actors. I'm gonna make them pay." No. When you have all these little pushes for to make more money and more money coming from the top down, it leads to when you're on set and all the all the things aren't supposed to be there because people left. The armorer left. Now we have someone who doesn't. Um, who doesn't have as much experience. And especially for that case, they still don't know exactly how the live bullet got into there. Oh, man. So it's this push to make more money, to maximize the workers while you have them, is what leads to these things. And I, I have a hard time talking about it because it seems a little crass to try to use her death for this issue. But this is what it is. Like, it is what it is. This, Just me feeling icky about it is because I've been grown up not to talk about these things. Like, it's not okay to talk about these things. When that's the exact opposite. We should be talking about these things because somebody died on set and they should never be dying on set. So, to bring it back, yeah, it's fucked up that she died and it was they were chasing money is why she died. That's just, I just want to make sure that is known is because they were chasing money is why she died mistakes were made yes but the whole push for profits is what caused her to die
2: yeah um i want to ask i guess one more question about IOTC specifically which is you mentioned that membership has moved right over the course of these negotiations and your assessment is that had you know there the sort of existing kind of structures aren't in place to vote down this tentative agreement i'm curious though What your sense, both for you personally and your local, the broader membership, the relationship between the rank and file and the leadership and sort of the existing structures within IATSE. So, you know, the process of ratifying a contract is a very convoluted electoral system um, that takes up quite a bit of time to explain to anyone. Um, And so I'm just, you know, there's been, it's played out a lot somewhat publicly in an unusual way. And that membership have been very vocal in their criticisms of the, what they see as the shortcomings of the tentative agreement. Some of this has played out, you know, in the fact that from the start of these negotiations, Some of this kind of sharing of stories was happening on social media already through that Instagram account, IA Stories. And so I'm just curious from where you sit sort of in your seat as a member, as a member of DSA, as someone trying to sort of figure out what organizing within the membership looks like. Sort of what is that relationship between the leadership and the rank and file?
4: Um, It's a cool relationship. Like we are encouraged to call our business agents and to call them because if something happens on set you got to call the union to come down. So we've always had that relationship and I've called them several times because things weren't right on set. So it's not I don't feel like I'm yelling at like my dad or anything or somebody within the thor- that has authority. It's more like it's definitely like they they're part of us, you know? They're part of us even though we may not agree about this TA right now, they definitely have been there in the past, like I said before about the the Y16A program. And when I'm talking about IATSE, I'm mostly talking about Local 695 from that perspective. Because they knew more had to be done, they didn't know what to do it, and they were able to accept criticism. Because I'm a pretty critical motherfucker, and I've been very critical and vocal to them online and nobody people like yeah vic is harsh but they could still reach back and talk back to me you know what i mean it's not nothing is cut off again i'm pretty critical and for someone to take that criticism disagree with me but still when the uprisings happen to reach out to be like hey vic we need your help i'm like wow okay Y'all are coming in good faith and y'all are pretty serious. And it sucks they use those words in the T um when they try to say for us to vote for it, that we see you, we hear you. Like that was that was tough to hear, but I think give them the benefit of the doubt. Like they that's how they feel. They hear us and they see us. You know what I mean? Like they don't know how else to express it. So I don't think they're, like, in bad faith and they, real, they think this is good and they want us to vote for it. You know, they're not in a back room. It's not them. I don't feel like it's them and the producers versus us. I do not feel that whatsoever. I just don't get that vibe. And especially since COVID, the uprisings, I felt even more part of the union, part of, and like that I could reach out to them. Like, we've had several conversations about different things at this point now. And we have not agreed on all of them, but things have changed.
3: You know, this striketober thing, are IATSE members looking at other unions? I feel like our union movement trains people to be little lawyers of their own contract, their little world. They talk in lingo. I have no idea what you're talking about. And it's really not about a broader, I mean, in some abstract sense, you know, it's like union, you know, workers, but really it's about what's in my contract, what's the end of the day for me. So one of the things that socialists have historically done but also this moment is doing to everyone like you said when all these people are in the room and it's you know more militant than any dsa meeting is like concretely are did you feel like through this contract campaign and right now like are the iatze folks watching john deere or the carpenters in washington or you know whatever you want to say the teachers from 2018 or is that not kind of on the level of the member to member Uh, i'm just curious is there like you know, if it's a strike wave, part of that is inspiration. Are people getting inspired by the other stuff and talking about it for them? Or is it more like we're taking care of our stuff?
4: It's definitely, we're taking care of our stuff. But like I was saying before, I'm not the only one in the meetings now talking about like, Hey, this is happening over here. What about the LA teachers? Like they had, because that's, I was bringing that up before COVID. I'm like, Guys, like, this is right here in our backyard. Look at the power of these workers and what they're doing. Nothing. no Like, no (laughs) clapping. Nothing. Just, (laughs) thank you, Vic. And just for sitting down. Wild. Absolutely wild. But in the town hall in September, I was like, yo, y'all remember me screaming about the teachers' union and striking, right? And people were like, Zoom call now. People were giving thumbs up. So, it's I do not think they see themselves as part of this bigger strike wave. And I used to think it's my job as a socialist because I'm not educating them. I'm not presenting them. I'm not showing it to them. But things happen when they happen to everybody. I'm going to keep saying because of COVID. Because when everything happens to everybody, shit changes. And we're just not there yet for it to see as there's a bigger wave of something else. Now they see, like, oh shit, we're workers, we're unions, we have power, we could make change internally. But as far as like, IOTC being tied to all the other workers, not there yet. No, I do not think so. Mm-mm. Vic, anything else you want to get in? Just to say that like, yeah, we're on the same side. Our leadership is definitely on our side. I feel it. And it's good to be, To have, like, open disagreements and everyone knows that, like, yo, we're not on the same page, but there's no vitriol, there's no, like, window breaking, there's no, like, name calling going on. There's just a lot of heavy criticism from workers towards their leadership, and I think that's healthy. That's very, very healthy. It's hard to just... Go with the flow, because a lot of times I want to push and think we should be doing this. the DSA should be doing this. And then Jacobin, mean, how come you guys aren't doing this? And you should be running this story and that. And I'm more of a proponent now of just letting history happen and do what we can and being ready for this interview. You know what I mean? Like stuff, all the reading that I've done has led me to be a good interviewer. I've been doing a lot of interviews, and I'm grateful for that too. So just want to say thank you for y'all. For helping me do good interviews and interviewing me also
3: I would just say, Vic, like I say this to the John Deere workers I'm talking to all the time, like we're, we're cheerleading you know you you're actually doing you know we there's nothing without the workers both both for the capitalist class and the uh podcast class, so
2: <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> ah,
2: no doubt. that's definitely true all
1: right, well, on that note, are yeah. uh, jonah Furman, Alex press. Thank you for joining The Dig. Thanks, Gabe. Yeah, thanks, Gabe. Thank you all.
0: Gabriel Winant teaches history at the University of Chicago and is the author of The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt America. Jonah Furman is a staff writer and organizer at Labor Notes. Alex Press is a staff writer at Jacobin Magazine and the host of Primer, a podcast about Amazon. And Victor P. is a member of IATSE Local 695, and a father, production sound mixer, rapper, and community organizer. Thank you for listening to The Dig, from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that, things are only settled by the continuous struggle between capital and labor, the capitalist constantly tending to reduce wages to their physical minimum, and to extend the workday to its physical maximum, while the working man constantly presses in the opposite direction. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We're posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis and recorded at WBRU in Providence. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Timus Frankel and Gemma Sack. Our senior advisor is Via Rio Francos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at TheDigRadio. And please find us wherever you get podcasts. And subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. But what really and truly does that is you telling your friends about the podcast, why you listen to it, why they should, etc. Please do make propaganda for us. And please, last but far from least, do find us at patreon.com slash thedig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and going strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge.